What I do know is that we are not bad putters. We think that we're good green readers and bad putters, and I would tell you it's the opposite. We're terrible green readers and pretty darn good putters. This is The Tournament Code. Tim, before we get started, I got to quickly tell everyone about the Golfers Agreement. Most of our listeners should know about this, but if they don't remember it, it's the agreement we have with them, which is we put out all this 100% for free. And all we ask in return is that if they're listening to us on their podcast player, to subscribe, leave us a rating. And if they're listening to us on YouTube, to like and subscribe. This helps us get out to more people, help more people listen to our guests, helps us get on more guests. So again, before we get going, Tim, that's all I had to tell them. All right, let's 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 get this thing going. Well, perfect. We appreciate you taking the time to join us today, Tim. We've heard a lot about you in a variety of factors. Obviously, your role caddying has been first and foremost as far as in the front of people's vision, but also you have your true aim ball marker, and you also have a caddying service out or start, pardon me, a shuttle service out in Bandon. Uh, for people. So you have a variety of, you know, facets that you've worked in. So today we'll go across the whole gamut to get to learn more about you and especially obviously about tournament golf, because you've been in a lot of tournaments and a lot of high pressure situations. So before we get to all that though, let's start at the beginning. How did you get into the game of golf? Yeah, my dad, I played a little bit of golf with him. I grew up in Texas, you know, so I was, I played a lot of sports. I didn't really play golf. I just kind of, he'd drag me out to the course and I'd beat it around, whatever. I went in the military after high school. And then when I got out, I was working at the state department and I worked at night. So we'd get up, these guys would play golf. So I started playing, you know, more golf then and just really, you know, really enjoyed playing, but I didn't like my job. So I went and worked at a local golf course, you know, near me and just, you know, got in the golf business at that point. So, you know, I've been all the way through it. You know, I was a, I did my apprenticeship and, you know, I was a head, I was a PGA member, and you know, from '93 to 2005, and then I got my amateur status back. But you know, anyway, that's kind of how I got started. In, you know, involved in it. That is awesome. So there's obviously a lot there to unpack as far as your history goes. How did you go from being a PGA pro to then caddying now, caddying now off off and on tour, depending on whether you want to or not and everything else in your life. Yeah, I was, so I, I was working as a club pro and I, I was terrible at it. Right. I'm just, <laughs> you know, not, not my cup of tea. So I was looking for other opportunities and ended up, I was living in Oregon at the time and, you know, Bandon Dunes had opened and I'd, I'd gone out there, actually interviewed for that head pro job when they first offered it and I didn't get it. But, um, Anyhow, I knew it was a great facility. I knew they had a worldwide clientele. So I was like, you know, I'm going to go up there and caddy and just meet a lot of people and just see how it goes. And I fell in love with that lifestyle, you know, and really started working hard on my game. And they were having the 2007 U.S. Mid Amateur. And so in 2000, you know, so two years before, you know, it takes two years to get your amateur status back or did at that time. It's not that way anymore, but so. You know, I said, look, I'm going to play in this tournament. I'm going to, I, I got my amateur status back. I wasn't that, I wasn't a very good player. And anyhow, so it was easy to give up. And so I just really started working hard on my game and, you know, at Bandon, there's, a, we have three, we had 300 caddies at the time. I think they're 500 now, but so you can imagine a lot of good players. So there was always a game and something to do. So it was really great. And my goal was to play in the, the 2007 mid amateur. So, which I did, um, I qualified for it and played and made match play and just had a blast. And that then once I started doing that, I really wanted to play in all these tournaments, you know, so I've played in three mid amateurs and I played in the four ball, uh, with a friend of mine, Kyle Crawford, we played in the first one and actually Bryson was playing with Austin Smotherman there. So that was fun to, to play, you know, in the same tournament as he did. That's pretty solid finish to get to match play at the U S mid amateur. I mean, a lot of the listeners may not know just how good you have to play to get to that point, but to give them an idea, what would you say your uh, handicap index was at that point? Well, I mean, yeah, just using my tournament scores because I never posted, but I, I was a plus three. I was a solid plus three. 
you know, with my tournament scores. You know, we played it. I played at Bandon, which is really hard. The course rating is really high. So if I would have posted all the time from there, you know, there's a there's a certain skill set that you need to play Bandon. It's a little it's it's a lot different than just normal traditional parkland golf. And so had I really posted, I'd have been higher, but it would have been fake. Right. I always think, you know, your tournament scores tell you what you are. But being a plus three, I wasn't even close. You know, you need, I think, to, to really compete and win like a mid amateur, you need to be a plus five or plus six to do that. You know, you got to be borderline tour pro. I mean, tour pros are in the, I would say, seven to 10 range. So, you know, good, a good amateur golfer is probably a four and a half, I would think, you know, and I was a three. So I was at the lower end. I was like a bottom feeder, you know, in that circuit. So. <laughs> But it was fun. I really enjoyed it. But good enough to catch the you have a sol- you have a solid day and you can make it. And obviously, you did well through that. And playing in that many mid amps is a pretty good testament, at least as far as how well you play under pressure. How did you go from caddying at Bandon, uh, play, get reviving or creating an amateur career for yourself, you know, in mid am stuff and the four ball, to then starting to caddy on professional circuits. Yeah. So, w- well, when I was working at Bandon, you know, I still wanted to do other things and, and I, I got into putter fitting. I was fitting putters for David Adele. I was a really bad putter. So I, my, I started diving into, Hey, why am I a bad putter? It wasn't due to lack of practice because I was practicing all the time. And so through Dave, if people don't know, David Adele builds custom putters and they're built on around the premise of aim, aiming your putter. And a lot of people don't know that Every putter has different aiming characteristics. And David created the system where we build putters that match the way your eyes see. And so through either head shape, hosel offset, line combinations, or, or all three combined to find out which putter that you see square, right? People aren't, aren't aware of that. So if we're not aimed properly, we have to correct with stroke or path, right? Or you know, face, face control. So anyway, I started with started doing that with David and fell in love with it. And you know, he's he's an amazing putter putter maker. And so I really got into that, and then followed that up with with green reading. And so I got involved with Aimpoint early on. And you know, I was on a golf course every day. I was able to utilize it and, and really figure out how it worked. And so you know, I was involved with Mark Sweeney and helped him do a lot of things, and he helped me do a lot of things, but. Uh, and that's how I ended up meeting, meeting Bryson. But so as I was doing all this, I was teaching Aimpoint. I met Bryson and, you know, was working with, the, you know, doing some things. I'd go out on, to the tour events and try and teach pros and worked a little bit with a few guys here and there. So a buddy of mine from Boise, Mark McConnell, he had a friend, Tyler Aldridge, that, that had got his tour card and was looking for, you know, to make a change at Caddy. And so he ended up hiring me and I worked for him for about four months and that was it. And that's how I got out on tour. So I know you mentioned you uh, met Bryson with your putting and working with Mark Sweeney. I know when he won the U.S. Amateur, he was using the Adele putter, like the one called the Brick, I think it was. Were you involved in getting him set up with that putter? No, no. Mike Shy was a fitter too. And that's how he was an Adele fitter. And that's how I met Mike. You know, I'd, I'd met Mike at the PGA show with David, you know, shoot probably 2008 maybe and then as i started working on the green reading i introduced it to or showed mike and he's like hey let's set up a class you know in fresno where he was at his academy and we did six schools and bryson was in the very first one and he was 15 at the time and he he picked it up right away and you know was helping helping teach it you know throughout the next five classes so and we'd play together afterwards we'd play like three or four holes before, you know until it got dark just kind of implementing it and playing. And I, I can see how good of a player he was, you know, at 15, he was, you know, legit. He was probably a legit plus three or plus four, you know, by that, at that time. And I was like, you know, he's a big kid too. You know, he was, he was probably six one and 180, 85 pounds, you know, so pretty good for a 15 year old. And I was like, man, you know, and he hit it great. He's just really into golf, you know? And so, and just like me, you know, I, he, if you ask Bryson, he would say that he felt like his skill set wasn't as good as others. And so his, and so he needed all these technologies to make him better. And, and I felt the same way for me for sure. And, 
And so that's how I got into all these and started like dissecting putting, right? And that's how ended up how we how we met. So I'm sympathetic to that because that's how I felt for a long time. But especially now that I'm trying to get back to playing solid tournament golf, I'm like, well, I don't have I don't have the same five days a week to practice that I used to, or seven days a week. I don't have that anymore. I got to figure out what I can with what I got, and that's one of the cool things about the putting technology. As far as we've got, you know, aim point to a read. Obviously, there was vector putting uh, for a while. There's uh, you have your true aim marker, which we'll talk about. The interesting with all those interesting thing with all those is how much they help a lot of people, myself included. And something that interests me about I wouldn't call them casual golfers, but a lot of people say, "Oh, that you can just you can just see it." And you were caddying out at Bannon, you were, I'm assuming, helping people read putts. And when you caddied for other people, you would help them read putts. You've probably seen more greens than most people will over a course of their life, over the course of their lifetime. So you've seen plenty, you've seen plenty of greens and still you chose to do aim point and use these other technologies. Tell us about why you found an advantage there or how, what sort of advantage you found there compared to just using your eyes. Yeah. So again, you know, I mean, I read a long time ago when I first got into golf, I read Dave Pels's book, Pot Like the Pros. And in there, he talked about green reading, you know, quite a bit. And, and I don't quote me on the numbers, but I think that he used 50 tour pros, 500 PGA professionals, and then a thousand amateurs. And he said that on average, the average player misreads direction, or excuse me, misreads the amount of break by 50%. So half, right? If we see a foot, it actually breaks two. And, and I knew that, right? You know, when you go out and play first, first thing in the morning and there's dew on the green and you hit a long putt, you know, I'd look and go, wow, man. I mean, I'd hit it up there close, but what would happen, you know, I'd be playing two feet. I'd go back and look and I'm like, man, I pushed the shit out of that to get it. You know, and I misread it, but I pushed it, you know, cause our subconscious is aware. That's the real thing is that. Our conscious mind gets in the way of this. Our subconscious knows, right? It knows so many things. Like, I hate to say this, but, you know, you've everybody's been texting and driving or whatever. And last second you look up and there's a car stopped and you stop at the, you know, just enough time. Well, there was a reason you looked up, right? It's like your subconscious knew something was going on, right? Even though our, our conscious mind was focused on something else. But it knows. And so we manipulate, I feel like, with, you know, either pushing or pulling to offset our bad conscious decisions right and this happens with green reading and so randomly i was i was fitting putters with mike at at, at a mike adams school and mark sweeney happened to be there and he was doing a demonstration at night and you know i didn't get an opportunity to go through the class because i was fitting putters but i got the chart i took it back to bandon and i worked on it for a week straight just on the putting green myself and trying to and figured out how it worked Right. Just on a planar surface, which if your listeners, they don't know, it's just one direction of slope. OK, so then I really started diving into it and really figuring it out with a buddy of mine named Jason Goldsmith and, and, and also Mike Shy, and really started working on on understanding green reading and how to implement it during play. And so anyway, what I do know is that we are not bad putters. We think that we're good green readers and bad putters, and I would tell you it's the opposite. We're terrible green readers and pretty darn good putters. And, you know, the stroke is only, you know, the longest, you know, unless we're, if we're inside 20 feet, the stroke's, you know, 12, 15 inches long, right? Why is it so difficult to repeat? And I don't think that it is, or I know it's not, right? So, and that's why I developed what I did, and and we can get to, into it later, but yeah, that's the advantage is, is that we can't read greens and we need a system. Well, at, let's let's hop into it right now. Tell us about the development. I'm sure, as I said, most people probably know you for catting. This is a, at least on my, for my awareness, this is a newer product that I'm sure a lot of people have not seen. So tell, tell us about that and we can get to catting in a little bit. Yeah. So, all right. So a couple things. One, and I, like, I talked to Chris Como a lot. He's a really smart guy. He's, in, you know, everybody knows he's a, he's one of the best instructors in the world. And, you know, we've talked about, hey, 
the process that the players are using right now or that us as amateurs are using, we, we've seen it, right? That we, we visual, we've watched other people do it, so that's what we do. You know, if you look at a kid playing college golf, he probably has a very similar routine to a tour pro because through observation, right? They go to a tournament. They watch how they do it. I mean, if you go, every player, almost every player, they go and hit a few putts before the round. Then they go to the range, and then they chip. Then they hit balls. Then they come back to the putting green, and then they go to the first tee. Almost every single player does it exactly the same way. And, you know, when Bryson came out on tour, he was different because he he didn't care. He doesn't care what people think of him from a, you know, oh, he's crazy or he's super technical. Well, he's really not. I mean, he's just – he's being smart about how he plays golf, right? And he's trying to con- – he's trying to limit – the number of variables that there are. And so he's created a process, his own process that's different than most people out there. You know, when Bryson, there used to only be one GC quad on the range. Now there's every player has one, you know? So Bryson changed the way, you know, that people started to prepare and look at their numbers, you know, and pay attention to them. So, I mean, that's just one thing that he changed. But what I will tell you is that during COVID, you know, we had a hundred days off basically from the, you know, when they canceled play at the players championship to the first event that was the Byron Nelson, or excuse me, the, uh, yeah, the Byron Nelson, excuse me. Sorry. I'm missing it. Colonial. This was our first week back. Bryson hit zero putts during COVID. He really did. He did not. He worked on his, that's when he bulked up and was working on hitting it further. And I mean, he did not practice putting. And the reason he didn't is because he has worked on locking his stroke down, right? And and controlling it through through biomechanics, right? Locking it in. He has an arm lock putter, right? And the way his putting stroke is, I mean, it is as repeatable as anybody's. He also uses a ruler to control speed, which I think he's the best in the world at. And then he has a green reading system that that we've created, right? Over the years. And so if he can control all those, those three variables, the three things that we need to do, one, start the ball online, two, control speed, and three, read the green properly, what, what's, what's there to practice, right? Now it's just maintaining skill. So, you know, he, and he, would, he does that. Where an, where an average tour pro probably works, you know, in a seven-day stretch at a tournament, you know, seven to 15 or 20 hours on the practice putting green, Bryson in seven days probably spends about an hour and a half to two hours max, Right. Because he's just maintaining the skills. Most of that is working on speed control. So that was part of, that was something that I'm like, hey, the putting stroke is not that difficult. I've seen this guy do it, right? So he created a system that worked. And then secondly, I was working, I was caddying for Adam Svensson. And and he's an amazing putter. He really is. But there was something lacking in why he couldn't, why he wasn't performing on the putting green. And I was watching him one day. We're at Valspar in Tampa. And I was watching him putt, and I was like, hey, Adam, do me a favor. Because he rolls the ball. He uses a line on his ball, and he rolls it perfectly end over end. 99% of the time, he rolls it perfectly end over end. And he works so hard on it, you know. I've never seen anybody putt more than him when I caddied for him. I mean, he spent – he was like, Tim, I putted eight hours a day for the last week, you know, when he had off. And I'm like, he's like, my back's a little sore from it. And I'm like, yeah, you'd think so, right? And, but, you know, he would practice more than anybody, but he rolled that line perfectly. So anyway, we were at Valspar and I was watching him. And I said, hey, do me a favor. Line your ball dead to the dead center of the hole. And he goes, okay. And I said, now, step in, address the ball, match your putter, the line on your putter to the line on the ball. And he goes, okay. And I said, what percentage of slope do you think you're putting across? And he said, a 2%. And I said, okay. Open your putter, what you think is two degrees, and then just hit it. He didn't move his, he just opened it up two degrees. He didn't change his stance or anything. He just stroked it and it went in. And it was about an eight footer. And he goes, How'd you do that? And I said, Man, I'm not sure. I've been thinking about something. Let me get back to you. So I happened to be staying with Steve Harrison, which is the, the owner, well, he was the owner of Sick Putters at the time. And it was, it was lucky for me that I was. And, I went back to his house that night and we were talking about what I did with Adam. And I said, Hey, can you draw or can you have a putter made with these lines on it? And this is what my marker looks like. Um, 
But I had this design put on the back of a putter. It was actually reversed like that. So I made it into a putter and I took it the next week uh, to Valera with Adam. And I said, hey, and you know, he's an Odyssey guy, so he had to do that. But I wanted to test it with a tour player. And so he hit a few putts and the first three putts he made using this system that we'll, we'll get into. But I was like, okay, I'm on to something here. I'm like, why would I try and sell putters when I could just sell a ball marker, right? So hopefully that wasn't too long of a story, but that's how I got into it, okay? And this stuff, man, look, two things that every golfer, and I can say this because I am a golfer, okay? Golfers are lazy, and I'm lazy as a golfer, right? And a lot of us are stupid in the fact that we don't research. When we have a problem, we just go, oh, whatever, and just keep trying the same thing. Well, no, man, that's not how you get better. You get better by, by making changes, right? And like Bryson, he will he will take something to the very limit, right? I could tell him, hey, dude, you'll putt better with a nickel in your shoe. And he'll go, okay, I'll try it. And if it works, he'll run it through its paces. And if it works, he'll use it. And if it doesn't, he'll say, that was stupid. But he will try it, right? He will try anything to get better. And I think golfers need to experiment more. We're so stuck in our ways and saying, hey, that's dumb. It won't work without even giving it a shot, right? And so anyway, that being said, I've fallen into those categories and I'm trying to get out of that, right? And I really struggle with my chipping right now because I don't get to play as much as I'd like. And that's something I'm really trying to work on and, and go wait. Instead of just being a bad putter and going to the the, the chipping green and tr- or chipping area and trying to get better by doing the same thing, I'm actually trying to dis- did I dissect it a little bit and go, wait a second. I obviously have a flaw. Let me fix it before. And, and then I can go out and start working on my chipping. But anyhow, this marker is the true aim marker. Okay. And how it works is, and I, I'm going to go, I'm going to ask you uh, a series of questions. Okay. If you look at this, there's nine angles on this marker. All right. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's a lot of markers and a lot of decision. And it's really not. So here's how this works. What you do is you aim your ball at the, it doesn't matter if it's a double breaker, triple breaker, one direction of break. When you mark your ball, you aim the line on your ball at the dead center of the hole. Okay. And I use my shaft like Bryson does. He holds up his, his putter shaft and, you know, off his dominant eye and make sure it's aimed perfectly at the center of the hole. Just like we would if we were aiming our line at a foot out. Okay. No difference. It's actually easier to aim at the hole because the hole is actually an object that's there instead of, you know, something that I'm looking at, you know, from 20 feet, a speck on the green, right, that I may lose. So we aim our ball, we mark our ball, we aim the line on our ball at the dead center of the hole. Okay, so now the ball is aimed at the middle of the hole. Then what we do is we put this marker down and we put the line on the ball in line with the, we put the, the center line on the marker in line with the ball. Right. So now the marker is aimed at the middle of the hole. Then we pick our ball up. Right. So, um, Daniel, let's use you. Tell me a hole that you know better than any other hole in golf that you've played a million times. Let's go. Doesn't let's have to go be famous, with the, it doesn't matter. First, let's go with the first hole at Keen Run. OK, give me a pin location, please. We'll put it in the back right. Back right pin. Okay. So I want every golfer or everybody that's listening, I want them to, to come up with a hole that they know better. Pick a pin location. Okay. So in your case, it's the first hole. We have a back right pin. And I want you to, to visualize that you hit it 10 feet left of the hole. Okay. So you have a 10 foot putt. You've marked your ball and you aim the line on your ball at the dead center of the hole. Okay. Now we have nine angles. Again, we have nine angles. So we're going to use a process of elimination to get to the correct answer. All right. So this putt that you have, this 10 footer left of the pin, the back right pin, is this straight or does it break? It will break and it will break left to right. Okay. So first one, you said it breaks. So we eliminate the center angle. Then you said it breaks left to right. Yep. Correct. It breaks left to right. Okay, so then we've gone from from nine to eight, and then when you say it breaks left to right, we've gone down to four because we eliminate your putt goes left to right, so we've eliminated the left angle. So now we're just working with the four right angles. Okay, mm-hmm. so I've labeled these angles. Now, if you use percentage of slope, the first angle would be one percent, the second would be two, third would be three percent, the fourth angle would be four percent. If you don't know percentage of slope, 
Then I've just labeled the, the angles. The first angle would be flat or subtle break. The second angle would be average or obvious. Or excuse me, average or obvious, yes. The third would be steep, and the fourth would be severe or breaks off the planet. Okay? So this putt that you have that breaks left to right, is it closer to flat or closer to severe? Closer to severe. Okay, so we've eliminated the first and second angle. So now we only have, we went from nine down to two. We have the third angle, which is steep. The fourth angle that's severe. Is this putt steep or severe? It's steep. Okay, so you'd put it on the third angle. You'd, you'd put your line on the ball in line with the third angle, right? And then you'd putt. Really? Okay, so what I'm going to tell you is that our brain can't do complex math, all right? And I'll give you a good example of why. Let's say that you're on that same hole and they haven't mowed the greens in a couple of days and you play that putt and you hit it uh, two feet out and you make it, right? Then you go out back the next weekend. Um, you're in the practice round for the member guests. They've double cut and rolled and the greens are two steps faster, right? And you have the exact same putt. Do you still play two feet of break? If I did, if I did, I would be I would be missing it by a lot because it'd break a whole lot more. Correct, but your eyes still see two feet. Mm -hmm. Our eyes can't see speed, right? Now we we have the assumption that it goes more, but how much more? And so in our in this scenario, if you played it on a three and made it, and then they the double cut and roll, you'd probably play it on four the next time because you know it breaks more, right? I mean, break is intuitive, and so is this marker using it. It, it becomes really easy to use as you start to you know use it right as you as you succeed or fail you start to interpret slope differently so really the key to this marker is being able to interpret slope more okay and you know people ask me hey does this work on all stem speeds and I'm like yes it does because you know let's say in this case when you used a three the greens were rolling ten. The next time we play, we're in the same exact spot, but the greens are faster. We'd probably play it on a half angle more or a full angle more, right? Because we would answer those questions differently. The key to using this process of elimination and, uh, elimination and asking ourselves questions is that our brain is designed to answer questions. If I said, how old are you? You know immediately. If I say, hey, what color is the sky? You say blue. What color is the grass? Green pops in, right? So... That's why we answer these questions to help us get to the process of elimination. If I said, hey, is it, is it closer to flat or severe? And you said, I can't, get, I can't tell you. It's between. Then you'd put it on a two and a half angle and putt. So that's the true aim process. And it's truly amazing how well it works. That is cool. Especially I can imagine for people who look at quote unquote technical technical things and say that's way too much that seems like a great way to help people with their intuition and improve it over time what have you seen how have you tested it in the field and with whom have you tested it sounded like you tested on the putter which makes and i get what you're doing there as far as which is a which is a pretty smart way to do it but obviously as you said everyone has their own putter they like everyone has certain things they like so how did you determine or how did you test it out with other people and how, what have you been seeing from players using it? Yeah. The first person I, t I mean, obviously I used it and tested it myself. And then I had a few buddies that have used it, but I took it to Adam Svensson and he, and showed him this process. And he's like, man, it's pretty amazing. And it works really well. Um, I've had, I don't know, probably 15 or 20 tour players play with it in tournament rounds or, and, or, or in practice and use it, get their feedback. You know, this is a, like everybody can use this, right? I will, I will say that obviously the, the tour professionals have a better sense of break than the average amateur, right? But again, everything I know about green reading, I only use this marker when I putt, right? The only other thing I do in addition to this is I make sure I locate my nearest straight putt, either uphill or downhill, right? If I have an uphill putt, I find the straight uphill. If I have a downhill putt, I find the downhill putt. And then reference where I am in relation to that to that. And I do that for, for speed primarily, but you know, someone that, and again, I took it to the guy that breaks down everything more than anybody. And that's Bryson DeChambeau. And I showed it to Bryson and 
Bryson is now uh, an ambassador for True Aim. He's helping me promote this. We actually just shot some some video at his house in uh, in Dallas. He he's building this beautiful beautiful home and has a but his golf studio is finished. So it was really cool that we were able to use it in there. And and so Bryson's going to help me with this. You know, a lot of people were like, "Oh man, they." You know, Tim and Bryson, when they broke up, it, they must hate each other. And that is definitely not the case. He's helping promote my business. And uh, so, you know, Bryson's putting the stamp of approval on it. That says a lot to me of how good the product is. I mean, he would, I'm doing this to make people better, man. You know, bottom line. I mean, yeah, do I want to make money? Absolutely. And I'm going to, but I wouldn't have put it out and put my, my name on it. And Bryson certainly would not if it didn't work. That's really cool. I'm glad to hear that you guys still have that good relationship and you're able to work together on this this new product. I'd like to kind of talk about, you know, your career with Bryson as a whole. We haven't really talked about it in depth, but when did that professional relationship start? What did you guys do together? How long did you guys work together? And then when did it end? So I was... I was caddying for Tyler Aldridge at Byron Nelson. I'm from Amarillo, Texas. My dad had driven down to watch the tournament and, and we missed the cut. And, you know, we weren't, we weren't playing that well. And I just wasn't enjoying it. You know, Tyler's a great guy and, and we're friends, um, but it just wasn't working out. And so I just said, you know, I'm not really into this. I didn't really enjoy caddying and, and it was just different. Right. And so I was just like, hey, I'm going to go back with my dad, play golf for a week, and go back to Bannon and start caddying and just see what else is out there. Well, on my drive home, Mike Shy called me and said, hey, Tim, don't leave Texas without us talking. So they talked to Bryson. Um, Bryson's agent and Mike talked to Bryson about me coming to, to work with him the next week. He'd let his caddy go that same week that, that uh, Tyler and I broke up. And so I flew back to Dallas that next day. Worked with Bryson at Colonial. We actually missed the cut, but missed by one and had some positive stuff. And he's like, yeah, let's try it again next week at Memorial. Made the cut, finished 33rd, I think, or 31st, something like that. And we just started working from there. How is it different working with Bryson than other tour players? You know, well, let me finish. I didn't finish the rest of that story. So I worked with Bryson. He won a web.com finals event in at Canterbury in Cleveland, outside Cleveland, Ohio. And that was a huge win for him and, and got his card for the next year. And then won John Deere. And then man, after that, he just, he started playing amazing golf. And I worked with him all the way up until rocket mortgage um, of 2021, maybe or 20, yeah, 2021. So I worked with Bryson for about seven years. And, you know, one of the things Bryson's really, he's an amazing boss in the fact that he makes you better at what you do. And he's like, there are no excuses with Bryson. You either, you're either working to get better every day or you're gone. Right. And, you know, Bryson's, and so that, but that is, I look at that as a positive. He made me a better caddy. Taught me a lot, and I and but he, the other thing is he's very open to new change to change and technology, and so if I'd bring something to his attention, he'd try it, and you know if it worked, it worked, and if it didn't, we'd, we'd scrap it. But um, he was always looking to go better, and he really challenged me to to help him to to come up with new stuff to make him better, and that's what we did. So he was an amazing boss. Um, as far as Bryson working with Bryson versus other tour players, man, he's it's. The stuff that Bryson's doing is is has changed golf. And so I introduce it to the players I'm working for and I get them on board and go, hey, we, we gotta if you wanna be the best, this is what we gotta do. Yeah, I mean you worked with Bryson for seven years. There's obviously a lot of uh memorable things that happened in that stretch of golf. He got through the web.com finals, got his tour card, won a bunch on tour, um, won the US Open, drove number six at Bay Hill. Other other things other things going on in there. What were some of the most memorable experiences you had? Yeah, man. I mean, you know, dude, he he is a he's whether you like Bryson or not, and a lot of people love Bryson, man. I mean, the the support that he gets at these tournaments, man, people love watching this kid. He is uh we had a lot of good times. You know, he worked really hard. I was proud of him for that. 
you know, and like the transformation he made, then going back. I mean, he, he has really changed golf, right? And he just that whole process was fun. I mean, every tournament win is great. Someone asked me the other day about, you know, hey, what was your favorite tournament win? And I'm like, man, they're all good. I mean, I, I wouldn't – it's I couldn't pick one over the other, right? And they're all important. So, you know, all the, just seeing all that hard work pay off and being in the winner's circle and, you know – no matter what happened, everybody's really happy and the whole team. It's just fun to see it all come together. And there's so many people helping, right? There's all the guys on the tour vans helping, his agent, his business manager, caddy, you know, all the support that we had out there. I mean, we, we, we needed all of it, but it was just amazing, man. Every single one. And, you know, I'm working with Kirk Kitayama now and he won it. He won it uh, Bay Hill last year. And, you know, that was just, Really, to be honest, yeah, selfishly, uh, you know, it's a great payday for us. It's fun to to be in the spotlight for a minute. But overall, like, I'm really proud of these guys because they work so hard. As you guys know, you know, be, if you want to be a good golfer, there's a lot of sacrifice, a lot of hard work. And just happy to see Kirk get his first win and being able to share that with him was pretty amazing. So, and all Bryson's success, winning the U.S. Open, you know, I mean, people dream of doing that. And shoot, just being on the bag is, you know. I got a little piece of that too, and pretty happy about it. Absolutely. Let's let's talk about what it's like coming down the stretch, both at just a regular tournament and at a major, and if it felt any different for you. Again, the one the one of the U.S. Open that I'm thinking about, there weren't as many fans. I can't even remember if there. I can't remember if there were any or how many there were. No um, fans. No, yeah, no fans at that one. So tell us what it's like though coming down the stretch. As a, as a caddy, kind of, because not only, like, obviously, you got to do your job, you got to run through your routine, but also, uh, I don't know how, what your role was like exactly as managing a player, et cetera. But when, for example, I've caddied for Cooper and uh, several events, and sometimes there comes a point down the stretch where I'm trying to not make him do better, but not only are we running through the process, but trying to make sure that his head's in the right spot. Yeah. I mean, so as far as these tournaments coming down the stretch, it's like we always have a process, right, that we run through, just like you said. And we, you know, treat every shot the same. And I think is if you're doing that every single every single shot and trying to get the best data, the best information, you know, it that really takes over. And I think that took a lot of pressure off Bryson. I think it takes a lot off Kurt as well, is that we're so into the shot. We have a rhythm where we're making sure we're making the best decisions to try and, you know, again, as a player, if you're not committed to the shot, you don't have much chance of pulling it off. And so doing all these little things, you know, they, they, they help calm the player, I think, sticking in, sticking and staying in the moment and just doing what we do, whether it's the first shot of the day or first shot of the week versus, you know, the one to win the tournament. And, you know, I, one shot that like, you know, Kurt last year at Bay Hill, he, we three putted eight. He three putted eighteen, or excuse me, three putted sixteen. We probably should have hit a seven iron, but I felt in my mind I kind of talked him into the eight because I just wanted to get it on the green. He was putting beautifully all week. He three putted one time, and it was like his first three putt in one hundred and fifty one holes. And I was like, let's just get it on the green. He's two putts. We'll take a one shot lead into seventeen. You know, seventeen, eighteen are super difficult. So we'll see what happens. And he ended up three putting, unfortunately. So then on 17, he stuffed it in there, stuffed it in there. I say stuffed it to that pin. Is You can't imagine how difficult that course is playing. Every year it just plays harder and harder. Greens are super firm, baked out, thick, rough. But he hits a shot in there at about 18 feet and cans it. And I just remember going, man, I I was so impressed at the, the level of concentration and the belief in himself to make it. You know, and I saw Bryson do it a million times, and it's just like, I don't know where these guys get the balls to do it. You know, it's just like, man, I'd be terrified. I'm nervous sometimes, cat, like watching that moment, and he made it, and it's just like, you know, at that point, you know, I, he had all the momentum. All he had to do was hit it, you know, either in the fairway or the left rough, where he did hit it in the left rough, and we were good to go. So, but, you know, yeah, it's – they're all different, but I mean, again, staying in that, staying in the process, staying in the moment, just doing, sticking with our routine, controlling what we can control, and not worrying about the rest. That's that's really what what it's about. 
let's talk some about your process. Uh, I've read some articles as far as what you bring to each player. One of them specifically I read was an article about you working with Lexi Thompson and not new things you introduced to her, but some of the concepts that a lot of people already intuitively have, et cetera, and you just have them more formulaically laid out and at least process-wise have it laid out. Tell us a little bit about what a pre-shot routine looks like. Even I know I can imagine maybe some of it's pre-round as far as maybe barometric pressure you're looking at, uh, wind patterns, all sorts of things, prevailing wind, all sorts of things that you're looking at. So tell us kind of what work goes into a shot. Well, one thing that we always tried to do was make every, you know, we, Bryson always say it's just air and grass. Okay. And every course is the same. Every green is the same, right? There are three shapes to a green, whether it's at Augusta or Muirfield, right? You have a, you have a planar surface, one, one angle, one, only one angle of slope. You have a crown, right? Which are two planers connecting. And then the same with the saddle, right? You have a planer here, planer here connected by a little saddle, right? Those are the same greens everywhere. There's nothing different. The only, only other one is a bowl, which is very rare because you have to put a drain in the middle. And I've seen only a few of those, but again, and you're just looking at planers connected around the side, right? So, I mean, those are the only shapes. And again, as far as golf courses, there's a straight hole, dog leg left, dog leg right. That's about it, right? So just, Doing the course prep, we just try to make sure that it's just like the range, okay? We, we're focused on hitting the shot. One of the biggest things that we tried to do is always make sure and understood how far the golf ball was going at all times of the day and, and different golf courses, right? So what I mean by that, a good example is we were playing in Austin this year at the match play, and Kurt played some of the best golf of his life there. He finished fifth, but we teed off in one of our matches. We teed off at eight o'clock in the morning and he was hitting his six iron 194 yards when we teed off. At noon, when we finished, he was hitting at 211. So we're talking a 12 yard difference in how far one club is going throughout the day. And most people don't pay attention to that. I mean, when we tee off, you know, when we teed off, it was probably 65 degrees. When we finished, it was probably 85 degrees. And so understanding, you know, so every week we get our numbers. On Monday, we get our numbers of where we are, right, at that altitude. And there's a thing called density altitude, which is a combination of barometric pressure, temperature, and altitude. And that gives you this density altitude. So understanding what that is and getting a baseline for all your clubs, that's what we do every Monday. And then... As the day goes on, I, I look at the weather and I can understand, I know exactly how, how that's going to change throughout the course of our round. And I make note of that. And then again, we get to the first hole. Our density altitude was, let's say, 2000 feet when we did our numbers, but now it's at, at minus 100, right? And the temperatures change. There's a formula that, I, that we've worked out that we know exactly how far the ball's going. So, to say that, you know, we're in the fairway having a shot. First thing, obviously, we get the front yardage, we get the pin yardage. Then we go over our density altitude and make that adjustment and how far the ball is going. So we'll either add or subtract yardage there. Then we work on a land number based on green density, how firm the greens are. And we have a formula for that as well. So a good example, like Bryson would hit his seven iron with 6,200 spin. He was always, a, he always wanted to spin it lower because if it got wet, the ball would spin more. And so with his angle of descent and his trajectory and the spin on the ball, we knew that on a six millimeter green density that his ball with a seven iron would, if it landed into a, a flat to a 2% slope would release four yards. And so we'd know that with, with all clubs. And I, there was a test that we do to measure the density of the green. So we'd put that in. So we'd have our front front number, pin, air density, green density, run out, and then wind. And then we'd come up with a number and I would say, hey, this is how far we want this ball to fly. And again, Bryce would always ask me, okay, how far do I hit the seven iron? And I'd say, I'd tell him. And he had a lot of 10 o'clock, 10.30 shots, or what we call three-quarter shots and full shots. So 
I'd give him both numbers, and then he would visualize what type of shot he wanted to hit with that club and get that distance. So it sounds like a lot, but it's really not. You know, we, once you get once we once we do it, you know, and, I, and I'm, I'm always again, I'm telling him. I would say, you know, I'd tell him the numbers, and he'd make a decision based off that. He'd say, "Hey, I like this pitch in two less because I'm going to lower the trajectory or whatever that is." But we'd talk through the shot, and again, trying to hit it as close as you can. The difference between a you know a six foot putt and a nine foot putt is a massive difference as far as make percentage. Yeah, that was that was exactly what I was looking for, trying to understand that. And as far as proximity goes, where you aim in part determines proximity and then obviously when you're hitting a golf shot there's there's a variety of outcomes that could happen how did you determine where you were going to aim so obviously i I get we created our own system for you know severity around the greens you know it's really hard when you play a golf course and you have three days to prep on it and you don't know where the pin is going to be you have a general idea but you know to know where you can be aggressive and where you can't be you know it's really important so there's you know, I had a system that I used that, that Bryson and I developed that we liked and we started using that. So we knew that, hey, you know, if I have a – and I'd rate it on a scale of one to five, one being 100% up and down to five being a penalty shot. So, you know, a two, a one or a two we'd go at every time. A three, we'd have to make a determination on that. Depending on where we were in the round or what was going on, you know, he may take on a three. If we had a four, which is like, you know, 10% chance up and down, we'd never go at. We'd always play away, play to the middle, take our chances with a long putt. So what kind of situations during a tournament round would he uh, become more aggressive? You know, just depending on, you know, what his comfort was with his ball striking, how much control he had of the, over the golf ball. Situational, you know, if he's, you know, if he has a two or three shot lead, you know, we'd be more conservative if we needed to make a cut you know we have to make a you know the decision to be more aggressive things like that you know that was all up to him i would tell him what was there i'd say hey we have a three we have a um three green value over here he'd make his decision on what he wanted to do and then there would be times where you know there's a pin that we cannot mess with and i'm like we need to be at the middle of the green here or we need to play right of this pin we must be right of this pin you know but Again, he's the player. He's the one feeling it. He's the one making the, that determination. I would, I would rarely, rarely tell him a start line. I would say, hey, we want to finish. Or I'd say, where are you looking or what's this shot look like? And he'd tell me what he was seeing. But again, that's the player. I'd give him the information he needed to know, and then he would choose his start line with this type shot he wanted to hit. Okay, so was target – we talked about up and downs uh, percentage around the green or up and down, like rating it around the green and then making a determination of target based on that. As far as was it, was there any component related to distance of the shot or was that something he felt as far as like, if I have a 90 yard shot and it's a pretty easy up and down around the green, then I might be going for, whereas if I have a 200 yard shot and it's, I call it a two or three. I might not be going directly at the pin, depending on where the pin's located. Right. No, exactly. You know, if we, if we had a 90 yard shot, we're always going at it. It didn't matter. You know, these guys are good. He might, might favor a yard or two to the right of the pin if there were water left or something with a 90 yard shot. But, you know, again, with a 200 yard shot and water left, you know, we're aiming, you know, two flag sticks right of it, trying to hit it in the fat of the green pin high if we could. Right. Just, I mean, now most golfers do that anyway. Right. But I will tell you, there are times where he'd say, man, I couldn't help myself. I, ha- I had to go at it, you know, and he'd either pull it off or he wouldn't. But he wouldn't be, you know, that was his decision. He chose it. That was that. You know, every once in a while I would say, hey, you know, we have a crosswind to a left flag, you know. Are you thinking cut here, you know, to hold it up? And he'd go, yeah, you know, or no, I'm just going to, you know, again, just talking through it. And when you're talking through it, a lot of people think, you know, Hey, I have to close my eyes and, and run this whole thing through my head to, to see the ball and what it's doing. And, and really, you know, when we're talking about the shot. That's part of visualization. You know, a lot of people don't think about that. And so just asking the right questions, making sure that we're covering all the bases, right? So he has a clear idea of exactly what he wants to do. It's not like he's thinking cut and then the last second he wants to hit a draw. No, we've, 
we've eliminated that shot option, right? By talking through it and understanding the exact number we need to hit it. What was the best round that Bryson played when you were on the bag, and what do you recall that being like? Uh, the best round Bryson ever played. Man, he played a lot of good rounds. He was a Sunday closer for sure. The best round of golf. Well, I mean, I, probably, you know, the three under at the U.S. Open, probably the best round he's ever played because, you know, we were a shot back, I think, starting the day. I want to say we were. I think, I think, uh, Matt Wolf had the lead. And, you know, there was a pivotal moment in that round on the ninth hole. Matt Wolf hit it in there on the five par. He hit it in there, man, 10 feet maybe. And Bryson hit it in there 25, 30 feet. And Bryson had this big breaker and just canned it. And Matt made his too. And we made the turn even par. And then Matt hit a shot at the flag on 10, a back left pin, and just caught the, the top of the bunker and stayed in the grass there. And Bryson hit a shot in, two-putted, and Matt three-putted. Or, excuse me, didn't get it up and down. We had a one-shot lead. Bryson, again, being aggressive there, tries to drive the 11th green, hits it up there. We hit a little wedge in, just a little flip wedge, and hits it to 10 feet, makes birdie. Matt made, I think, bogey there, hit it in the rough, made bogey. So now we have a, a three-shot – or yeah, we have a three-shot lead. And then on the 14th hole, Bryson missed the green left in a terrible spot, you know, what I would have called a four value, and hit this miraculous chip that ran by about to 10 feet, which was really, really good, and canned that putt. And from there, it was game over. You know, he was – it was – I know it wasn't easy, but he made it look really easy coming in. I think he made a birdie on 16 and – and uh, birdie on 15, birdie on 16, and and that was it. And I think he had, he won by six shots there. So, and being, you know, the low round of the day, winning the, the only player under par, all that pressure. I mean, I, I don't know what he'd say, but I mean, that was, I mean, pretty, pretty magical there. Yeah. He played, he played a heck of a round of golf and a heck of a tournament there. And his distance helped also, you see that there helped separate him um, from everybody. One thing that's interesting, you know, we get we get to do this podcast. We talk with a bunch of different people, and Cooper and I came into this. It's not we're not genius, but we know a little bit about golf. We've been around for a while. We thought, okay, you know, we kind of know what we'll learn. And in general, I'd say a lot of things over the course of the podcast have changed how I view golf, what theories or what theories I I used to probably be a little more rigid more rigid about certain things is. And now I see a whole lot more, especially talking with fitness guys, uh, where I hear from them like, okay, look, like I don't really understand the mechanism, how this works, but this guy works with the number one player in the world in XYZ and these other players. And he's saying he's seeing benefits and I don't know for sure if it works, but it it sounds like, uh, but he says it does. And I mean, there has to be something there if the proof's in the, Putting even if I can't understand the mechanism, because I said I'm not I'm not a genius. But the unique part is what we've learned from each guest, and we've learned a lot just being around. As I said, as a caddy and as uh, a player yourself, you've been around a lot of different people in the golf world, not just players, coaches, you name it. You dropped a bunch of names, not in a bad way. You dropped a bunch of names of people you know. Sounds like a good relationship with and can bounce things off of what are some of the things that you've learned from being around that group and what, and especially what are some of the things that have surprised you that you've learned being around a bunch of different great coaches, players, etc. Yeah. You know, golf is really, uh, really, really strange. Like, you know, I grew up playing baseball, football, I wrestled. And if you, if, if you asked, it's funny in these games, you know, all we work on are the fundamentals of the sport, right? Most golfers don't understand the fundamentals of the game that they play every day. And it's crazy to me that, you know, look back at your childhood and look at the things you did in every aspect. You always worked on the fundamentals. You know, we worked on the fundamentals of hitting, of throwing, of fielding, you know, free throws in wrestling. We worked just every day on every move and make to make it, 
repetition, right? Just repetition after repetition to make it automatic if we got in that position. Football, we worked on our plays and our blocks and our tackling like every single day and rarely worked on the game aspect. And what I found with golf, there are a million different methods, right? Every instructor is teaching something else. And and that that can that can trick a lot of people up or you know trip a lot of people up, excuse me. And I think one is is putting, man. I I I feel like I really believe that I don't I don't think putting's very hard. I think that we're focused on the wrong aspects of it. I'm not just saying that because I mean, look, if you have a green reading system, you're ahead of the game. You're a better putter, I promise you. I don't know one guy that has a green reading system that's a bad putter. I really don't. I know a lot of guys that don't have a good green reading system. They're terrible putters. And again, I don't think it's their stroke. I watch tour pros roll the ball end over end every time. So whether you're using true aim or any other system, use one. I don't care which one. I would love for you to use true aim because I think it's a no brainer, man. I mean, I'm really excited about making golfers better, but um, yeah, that's, that's been a big, that's been something that's really, stuck out to me is I'm like, man, there's so much information out here. How do I know which guy to go to or, you know, what to do? And, you know, I've been around what I feel like is, you know, Bryson's obviously one of the best players in the world, hands down one of the top five players in the world right now. And, uh, man, through watching what he's done, you know, trial and error, you know, and, and finding guys that will help him get better. And I've seen, I've seen that progression and what it's made me do is look at the little things, you know, and, and I did it with myself. Hey, I'm a bad putter. Let's fix it. How do I do that? Right. And I start to, to get into it and, and dissect each, each aspect of putting, you know, from starting the ball in line, controlling speed, understanding green shapes and how they affect the ball, you know, how much they break. And, I just feel like golfers don't do that enough. They really need to, you know, it's easy to say I'm bad at something and then just turn, you know, walk away. You know, how do we fix it? That's the hard part. And again, golfers are lazy. We need to, we need to really look at things that are going to help us get better and trust it. At least, at least, at least try it. Uh, Something that stuck out to me earlier in this podcast was that you said that uh, Adam Spencer practice putting eight hours a day Bryson didn't really practice it all that much he just locked in his um, technique or his fundamentals how do you have that kind of mindset to where you can trust you're doing the right thing without just grinding on it all day because I guarantee you you know he's a better putter than Adam Spencer even though he's technically putting in less time yeah I mean well again I I, I think if you asked and again let me get this straight Adam's when I said he put it eight hours, he said he, the whole week off, he put it eight hours a day. Now, normally he probably puts an hour to two a day. He really works hard on the putting green. And he would tell you that, hey, he feels super confident in his ball striking because he is one of the best ball strikers on tour. So, you know, again, when we're really good at something, we spend less time on it because we don't need to. He just maintains, right? And that's what Bryson does with this putting. He's, he's got it locked down. So all he does is here's his warm up. We pop a chalk line. We'd pop a chalk line on a straight uphill putt. He'd line his golf ball and make sure that ball is rolling perfectly end over end. And he'd work. He'd probably hit 15 putts doing that. That was his stroke maintenance for the day. 15 putts to make if he's rolling it perfectly end over end. If he wasn't, then he would start working on different ways to roll it perfectly end over end. The only way to do that is to roll is to have a square club face at impact. If you're locked down and your strokes, right? If your strokes under control, you'll be able to do that. And I tell people you you should use a line. I didn't use a line for a long time and I regretted it. It's like, man, every time I hit a putt, it's giving me feedback. It's letting me know I did something right or I did something wrong. Okay? If I can't roll it end over end, like when I first put a line on my ball, it took me probably 15 minutes to roll it end over end with some consistency, right? Because I just wasn't focused on it. Then I started really focusing on the face rotation or my path or whatever it was. I just started, you know, experimenting until I was able to roll it end over end. 
And so this is something I've, I've asked a lot of putting instructors and teachers. I said, listen, if you put a person in a room with a golf ball and a golf ball with a line on it and a putter, and they said, you can't leave this room until you can roll it end over end with consistency, how long would it take? And I get all kinds of answers from a day to 10 minutes. But on average, I say about two hours, someone could figure it out. And I'm like, well, if they could figure it out on their own, then what do they need us for? It's true, right? It's not that difficult to deliver it with the square club face with consistency. It just takes awareness of that I'm not, right? And good and, and watching the ball rolling in over in to know that, oh, that was a good stroke. That's what that should look like or feel like. So that's that I've gotten off track here, but that, that, you know, to me is really a key part of putting and under, you know, we need to have these, these measures, right? Did I answer that question? I don't know if I did. Yeah, no, I think, I think you answered that well. And having, I think that's a good framework for people to have. And we've talked about ideas like that before is that you have your checkpoints, you go and test your checkpoints and really, especially with putting, what if you're hitting those checkpoints, there's not much more you need to be doing. The rest of it is ego is uh, ego assuaging or something like that, where you just, well, it, it can be where you just want to feel better uh, about it, but it could be, as we said, not the best use of time. Right. You know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Right. It's like, I don't know how many times the guy's been striping it on the range and then they want to hit another bucket. And then before you know it, whether fatigue or lack of, lack of focus or concentration, they start to hit it bad. And then all of a sudden, oh, wait, now I'm not hitting it good anymore. And then it opens up a whole can of worms, right? And I'm sure everybody's done that. It's like, if I just chip 10 balls perfectly, why am I chipping in an 11th? My, you know, like a free throw shooter. If you went and hit 15 free throws in a row, would you shoot a 16th? And most everybody says, yeah, I would. And I'm like, why? You can only get worse. Right. So it's like, dude, if I'm if it's about maintaining, right, it's about maintaining the skill. If I can make 15, obviously my shot's pretty good. Yeah. At that point, your misses are not. Probably not because of your shooting, because of pressure or, or ability to withstand pressure, et cetera. Uh, right. Exactly. You're right. Being in a dynamic environment. Well, you, can hit, you can work yourself into a slump really easy. You know, I've seen it done. So trust me, I'm, I'm doing that on my Saturday pickup games right now. I'm in a big slump, uh, but that, that's how it goes. Um, uh, it's been great talking with you, Tim. I think this is the last question we'll ask is the last question we ask every guest, which is we'll make it two parts here. And so bear with me for the two parts. First, I know you really didn't play golf that much as a junior. So call it when you started playing seriously. Uh, or more competitively in this context. But if you go back to yourself at that time and tell yourself just one thing, what would that one thing be? And then number two, you have a lot of experience working with professional golfers, golfers of um, every level, obviously, as you caddied out of band. And if you could go and tell a junior golfer just one thing, what would that one thing be? So the one thing I'd tell myself was I'd be like, quit quit faking it, right? Quit, quit pretending like you're putting in the work and you're not, you know, don't expect to shoot low numbers if you're not putting in the time working on it. Right. I thought I would, I'd, you know, Oh, oh man, I, I can shoot, you know, I'd shoot, you know, 72 or 75 in a tournament and I'd be pissed. And I'm like, why are you upset? You, you didn't even deserve to shoot that. Right. You're not working hard enough. And that was really what happened to me. You know, when I, when I said, Hey, I want to try and, set some goals and play in this 2007 mid-am. I started working on my golf swing every day, working on my putting every day and then to deserve to play good. Right. So that was that as far as a junior, what would I tell him? I mean, again, keep your expectations on a reasonable level. And I'll give you a good story. I was standing behind Bryson at the Wells, at Wells Fargo championship and I was, maybe it was a practice round, I believe it was, and I was just watching him just, you know, working hard, right? And I remember just thinking, man, this kid, never been on a date, had a four-point whatever in, in, in high school, you know. I mean, 
that's a big thing. College coaches want you to have good get get an academic piece so they don't have to give you a full ride, right? Because they don't, right? And give you a little bit of academic, a little bit of golf, and here we go. But this kid just never all he did was sacrifice one hundred percent of his life to his grades and to his golf game. And you know, he was a coach's dream, man. This kid would all he wanted to do, this level of sacrifice that he had. And it made me look at myself and go, man. If I would have just given half of what this guy, I wouldn't be caddying. I'd be, who knows what I'd be doing, right? I mean, you've really got to work hard. So golf and life parallel each other. It's like if you're failing in life, it's because you're not putting enough effort into it. And if you are being successful in life, you're putting a lot of effort and time into it, right? Just like golf. You can't fake it. So that those are the two things I'd say. Brilliant. Well, if people are trying to find you on social media, if they're trying to find True Aim, if they're going out to Bandon and they need a shuttle service, tell us where everybody can find you, your products, et cetera, and how they can support you. Yeah, so the marker, True Aim Marker, is trainmarker.com. And it's just True Marker on Instagram. The service I run in Bandon with my partner, Amos Baker, he runs the day to day out there. And it's a, it's a luxury bus service to Bandon Dunes. We've taken a, a 24 passenger bus and turned it into eight captain's chairs that are heated, cool, massaged and has a bar and TVs. And it's beautiful. It's like a, a it's like a luxury jet, man, but on the ground. And uh, that's called Loop. So Bandon Loop Transportation, uh, type that in, you'll get it. Or if you just type transportation into Bandon, you'll see it. So a luxury transportation. But Loop is that service. And that's it. No one, no, no. If you don't need either one of those, don't contact me. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. We appreciate it. Be sure to check out True Aim. Be sure to check out Loop if you're going to Bandon. And then if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, remember the golfers' agreement. We need you to do this for us. Please subscribe and leave a rating. If you're listening on YouTube, please like and subscribe. This helps us get out to more people. If you're trying to find us on Instagram, you can find us on Instagram at the Tournament Code and on Twitter at Tournament Code. As always, we appreciate you taking the time to join us and dive in deeper what it takes to play elite tournament golf.